Well, good morning. Uh, great to be here again. It's great to see some new faces. And uh, for those of you who are new, you won't know that we're in a series about the book of Acts. And uh, we're sort of joining after, after Pentecost. We're sort of joining together uh, and sort of reading through the story of the early church. Because we believe there are lessons that we can learn today from, from what happened in this early church. And we spoke a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday about the birth of the church and how when the Spirit of God was poured out on these, this group of disciples gathered together in a room, everything changed. This group of, uh, up to that point, terrified men and women who'd been cowering and sort of hiding away were filled with power and they went and preached the gospel and essentially changed the world. They, they saw everything that Jesus had planned for them come to pass. And so we, as we're sort of in that early stage of our life as a church, want to ask together that, uh, that question, what can we learn from these disciples and what can we learn from this period of the church's life, the birth of the church? And today we're in Acts 3 and we're talking about this, this story we've just had read to us about Peter and John healing this, this beggar. Now, just earlier in the week, uh, as every night, pretty much every night I do, I was sort of lying down with my eldest daughter, Grace. She's six years of age. And I was about to put her to, to sleep, not kind of anesthetize her. <laughs> Don't do that in our house. Uh, but, you know, just lying with her and reading a book and all that kind of thing. And, and Grace, she just turned to me and said, Daddy, what's the most precious thing you have? Kids do this all the time, right? In the middle of sort of ordinary life, you're just sort of going about something mundane, and they ask you this like massive question. Daddy, what's the most precious thing you have? And I said, Gracie, you are. She wasn't convinced, clearly. So I, she said, no, 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 Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. What's the most precious thing you have? I said, Gracie, you are. She said, Daddy, no. What's the most precious thing you have? So I start to say, well, it's you, and it's your mom, and it's the, the twins, and Jojo, and she's, no, you, you, she, she was desperate for me to tell her about some kind of material possession. Maybe I was sort of seeing it, like looking too deeply into the story. I don't know why, but you know, obviously for me it was clear, you are the most precious thing, Gracie, but for her she wanted me to say, I don't know, my guitar, or my computer, or my phone, I don't know what. But I was thinking really deeply in that moment, I was thinking about the truly the most precious thing, and probably part of that was that it was the day after uh, the Grenfell fire. And I think we've all we all looked at that, didn't we, and said, "Goodness me, I cannot imagine that." We can, none of us can imagine losing everything as those people have have done. That whole community has done. And it feels like we, as a as a as a nation, honestly, this is how I feel. We as a nation are in. A time of shaking. A time, I can't even remember a time like this. And even I thought it was interesting yesterday, the Queen, her, her letter, uh, how, how she recognized and I think named this season that we as a nation are in. A, a time of shaking. And in these times of shaking, what you truly value, what is most precious to you, uh, you become more aware of it. How many of us who have children that night when we put our children to bed, we're like, you know, we held them that little bit closer. We called that person in our family that we haven't spoken to for a while. You know, when there's these times of shaking, we, we hold on to, we want to hold on to those things 
which are most precious to us. We all do that. That's not just, that's not just the church. That's happening all over the world. Now, what's most interesting to me about it is that the response of the community surrounding Grenfell Tower has been just this outpouring of generosity. And it's like the natural human response in a time of shaking is giving. And the churches have been doing this, yes, but actually everybody's been doing this. And the critique of the government and the critique of the council is that they haven't done this. Right? This one thing, this giving away, this generous outpouring, that everybody else has done it, and yet the structures haven't done it. The systems haven't been able to do it. And I think there's something for us as the church to ask this morning. And this is the question I want to ask and hopefully begin to answer through looking at Acts 3 this morning. This is the question. In a time of shaking, what does the church have to give? In a time of shaking, what does the church have to give? What uniquely can the church offer to people in these times? Now we read, don't we, about Peter and John. And this is what we read in in Acts chapter 3. I'll read it again. We've seen it already once today. But here we go. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. One day, could have been any day. This is just one day. It's like just in the middle of their ordinary lives. There they are, wandering up to the temple of prayer. And we actually find that they were doing this every day. This is just a a regular prayer time. And yet, in the middle of this completely mundane thing that Peter and John do probably every single day, something incredibly miraculous takes place. Isn't that always the way it is? That the miraculous is hidden right in the middle of the mundane. We heard a story a couple of weeks ago. Sarah, one of our community who's a a nurse in uh, the oncology, I think, children's pediatric oncology. Is that the proper way to say it, any medics? She does children's cancer work. She, She told a story about how in the middle of her day, she just began to pray for a girl who, um, who had some really deep sort of mental illness who was uh, thinking suicidal thoughts. There's this deep sense of self-hatred. And uh, Sarah just took a risk and she prayed for this girl. Right in the middle of this mundane working day, she prayed. She came back the next day um, and asked about the girl. And they said, oh, she's gone home. Everything, you know, she's just, she's, she's totally fine. Everything's, you know, all her thoughts of, her negative thoughts have gone. And there she is, she's just gone home. It's an amazing story of God doing something miraculous. Right in the middle of the mundane. And that's exactly what happens with Peter and John here. Just one day. In the middle of the ordinary, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Now, there were probably at this point three times of prayer in a day. There'd be sort of morning prayer, like we have. We pray the psalm in the morning. They'd go to the temple at morning prayer. If you were in Jerusalem, you'd do this. uh, And you'd go for morning prayer. And then you'd go for evening prayer, which is at 3 p.m. This is the time of day that they're there. Remember, there's no electricity. So it gets dark when it gets dark. So your sort of day is slightly compressed. And then there'd be another time of prayer, a third time of prayer at sunset probably. Now here they are in the middle of those times of prayer, on their way into the temple where this prayer would take place at three in the afternoon. And they meet a man. It says, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, temple gate called Beautiful. Okay, we, we meet a man. Who is this man? What can we learn about this man? Well, firstly, we, we find out that this man was lame from birth. 
Okay, in this culture, if you had a sickness or an illness that was from birth, congenital, you were born with it, it was considered that that sickness was, was way more difficult to heal. It was way more difficult to treat. And so you'd sort of be seen as like an outsider. You were an outsider anyway because you were sick, but you were even more of an outsider. It was even more hard to reach you if, you were, if something was wrong with you from birth. Now remember again, there's no welfare state here. There is no way in which this man can be given, uh, can, uh, there's no way he can earn anything, of course, because he can't walk, and there's no way he's not going to survive on handouts from any kind of state. There is no state. All there is is the gift of other people. So he's taken to this place, the temple gate, every day it says here. He's taken there every day, and he's, he, he's sort of put down by his friends or his family. We don't know who. And this has been happening to him every day, that, that he would beg for money and people would give him money. And that's probably a particularly lucrative place to beg, right? People are about to wander into the temple. They've got some cash in their pockets. And, and you know, they're about to give something to an offering or something else and whatever else happens in the temple. And they've got a bit of cash. And he says, look, can I have some money? And often people, of course, would give to him. This was part of the, the Jewish faith that you would give generously. So this man has been surviving his whole life. We don't know how old he is. But he's been surviving on the handouts of people who walk by him. He's lame from birth. And he was carried to the temple gate. Now, where is he physically located? It says he's located by the temple gate called Beautiful. In other words, this man is sat right on the cusp, right on the boundary of the most sacred place imaginable. Jerusalem's temple. Now, we don't really have anywhere in our culture today that really compares with a temple like this. I know there's places like St. Paul's Cathedral and everything else, but the temple, you've got to understand this, the temple for the Jewish people was so much more than just like a church. It was a place of, of not just religious like uh, value, but it was a place of great architecture too, but it was also a, a place of power, of social, of economic power. It was, it, was, it was somewhere where if you talked about the temple, people would like, you know, the hearts would begin to flutter, but wow, the temple. It was somewhere that was venerated and honored in the culture. The nearest I could get in thinking about this was to think about how some of us feel, those of us who, you know, worship various sports teams, feel as we're going on a match day to a game. Now, a couple of years ago, I went to the World Cup final of rugby. I'm not actually a massive rugby fan, but I was offered a ticket, and you know, you don't turn out a ticket for a World Cup final. And as I was approaching the ground, and I've done this many, many times going to see Man City play, best team in the land and all the world. As I was approaching the ground, there was this amazing sense of um, you know, anticipation, and Twickenham was, was just like buzzing, and there were Kiwis and Aussies, and I was an Aussie for a day, I'm ashamed to say. This can be my confession. And there was this great sense of, of like expectation and anticipation. That would be, that times 100 would be what the temple was like. And here the, this man is, sitting on the brink of the temple, but never able to go in. And the temple gate called Beautiful is a particularly interesting place for him to be sitting, because it's... It, as it's named, it was a beautiful gate. It was actually, uh, some bronze was donated by this, um, it was otherwise known as the Gate of Nicanor. And this Alexandrian guy from Egypt, he donated lots of bronze for this temple gate to be built. And it was stunning, covered in bronze. So when the sun would shine on it, it would dazzle you. And there were 15 steps up to this gate. 
course, the man couldn't get up the steps. And even if he could have climbed up the steps, lame though he was, even if he could have dragged himself up the steps, he wouldn't have allowed to, been allowed to go in. Because nobody who was lame or maimed or sick in any way was able to go into that temple where the presence of God was. Here we have this man, the ultimate outsider, unable to access God's presence. How many of us feel like that? How many of us grew up in a situation like this man where we just felt from birth, for whatever reason, that we were an outsider? That, you know, this, this God thing, it wasn't for us. It was for other people. It was for the religious people, the people that, you know, that got it right, the people who did well at school or the people who had, you know, two parents in their house or the people who didn't struggle with this or that or the other thing. It was for them. And we feel like maybe some of us have felt like we're the outsiders. Shut out of the presence of God. Shut out of God's blessing by the insiders. By the people who have the power and just don't want to share it. How many of us are the insiders? And we had everything given to us. And actually it's working pretty well for us. We have the power. We have access to God. And for us, it makes sense that God would want us in his family because we dress the right way and we think the right way and we act the right way and our ethics are all lined up and everything else. And we pray three times a day. Here this man is on the edge of respectability where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. So this guy's looking for a regular day-by-day transaction. He wants money, not unreasonable. He wants money from Peter and John, but they have something else to give him. Peter clearly saying, actually, I've only got card on me today. I was going to do chip and pin at the temple today. Sorry, mate, I don't have any money. Look at me, though. Look at me. And he stares into this man's eyes. What does he say? Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. This is a key moment. For Peter and John. This is a key moment for this man. This is the the hinge moment of his entire life. This man, forever shut out of God's presence, has here in this moment the most startling realization. Yes, he might be shut out of the temple. Yes, God's presence may be lost to him forever. But God has sent two men who carry his presence to bring the presence of God to this man. Silver and gold I do not have, Peter says, but what I do have I give to you. Peter gives this man what he has. You can only give somebody what you yourself have. Peter gives him the one thing he has, and Peter knows what he has. He doesn't have any silver, he doesn't have any gold, but he has one thing. Peter has Jesus. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. 
Peter gives this man that which he has. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts. This man is healed instantaneously. It's the most incredible thing. A man who's, been, who's never walked in his entire life, Peter grabs him by the hand just like this, pulls him up. His ankles are made strong and in, instantly he begins to walk. And it says that he goes walking, that wasn't a miracle there, uh, that he goes walking and leaping and praising God. What's the response? What's the outflow of this, of this moment, this interaction between this lame man and Peter who, who carries Jesus with him? What's the effect, if you like, of, of Jesus being handed on from one person to the other? What does it look like when it happens? What it looks like is a man, my mum's calling me, sorry, not now, mum, I'm preaching. Um, what, it, what it looks like is when Jesus is offered from one person to the other, what it looks like is healing for a start. It says this man went walking. We all know he couldn't walk before. So there's a moment here of healing, is a, that the presence of God, when, when Jesus himself is, is given from one person to another, healing takes place. You know, when somebody receives Jesus, they, they have to be healed. I, I, don't, I don't mean that, that we always see fullness of physical healing. Or, or What I mean is there's always a change. There's always a change. There's always a transformation of some kind. By the way, it's not always the transformation we were seeking. You know, maybe, maybe we come to Christ, we come to faith, and, and we were looking for some physical ailment to be healed, and it doesn't happen. We see a transformation in somewhere else in our lives. If, if you receive Jesus in your life, there will be a change. There has to be a change. Because that's who he is. There will be some form of healing. And this, man's, this man receives physical healing. He begins to walk. But he doesn't just walk. It, it says he, he begins to leap. Leaping is like, you know, walking's like good, isn't it? Walking's like, he's sort, but leaping, I don't know how we would even do leaping. Should we try? And leaping is like one of those, isn't it? That's a leap, I think. Would you say that's a leap? Okay. Okay. One more? Another lip? What, what, what should I do, Andrew? Do you, you don't have to say you're strong enough. I wish you were she. Whoa! That's a leap, isn't it? Like, and you might even do a little one of those, you know? That's, uh, that's all I got, guys, for today. <laughs> so that's leaping, right? Leaping is like, you don't, you don't do leaping unless you're ecstatic. You don't fake leaping. Walking, yeah, sure, great. But leaping is the overflow of somebody who's been transformed. Leaping, leaping is a manifestation of joy. You, you don't leap unless you're overjoyed. That's what Jesus does for people. Jesus places joy into them where there was no joy. And you know, joy is not happiness. Because we can be broken-hearted and yet joyful. We can't be happy and broken-hearted, but you can be broken-hearted and yet joyful. And this man still lives with the pain and the shame of years, decades as far as we know, of, of, of sitting by this. People who have you know, overlooked him, he, he probably still carries some of that with him. And yet he's joyful. He's overjoyed. Why is he overjoyed? Because for the first time in his life, this man is in the temple. You, you know that? He's probably looking around thinking, wow, all my life I've been an outsider. 
Every day of my life, people have looked down on me, literally, physically, but also in every other way. And here I am, an equal. I'm just like anybody else here now. And this man, Peter, and this name, Jesus, has done it for me. Walking and leaping, and what, what else? Praising God, it says. In other words, the, the outflow of this, this interaction between this broken, hurting man and Peter, who has Jesus, is worship. You know, the goal of all of this is worship. The goal of healing is worship. The goal of God releasing joy and freedom into our lives is worship. Our vision, God's vision for this city is to see a whole city of worshippers. You know? Not worshippers of any of us or, or Trinity Church or any other church, amazing churches in this city. But the point is not to create disciples of any one church, but to create worshippers of the one true God. And when Jesus is given from one person to the other, because you know we have the capacity to do that, when Jesus is handed from one of us to another person who didn't have him before, what is created is not just sort of followers of us, but worshippers of God. People who are changed, people who are transformed, people who are filled with God's Spirit and who are released into freedom. People whose anxiety dissipates. People whose um, shame is taken from them. People who are overjoyed. I think we're still growing in joy, aren't we? I think we've got some room to grow in joy here at Trinity Church. And I, I, every so often I ask myself, I, I say, Amen, are we really serious? Because so, there's something really serious we're doing here, isn't there? Like we're about the worship of God. That's serious. But it really should be fun. And I sometimes think, you know, like, gosh, am I really, are we really, I want us to, we can have a joke, we can have a laugh, because this is about God. And at, this, it, at once it's both very serious and also completely hilarious. I just want to encourage us to take some risks in joy here. I, I think, I think, I'm just, you know, I'm just guessing that we can, we can push ourselves even a bit further. We can step into this. We can step into joy. I don't mean fake it till you make it, Christianity. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about denial of reality. I'm not talking about a Christianity that has no space for lament. Quite the opposite. But I'm saying in the middle of all of that, we are able to praise joyfully. So we see that's what happens in this man's life. What happens for the onlookers? When all the people saw him walking, verse 9, walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What's their, what do the insiders say when they see this man? What happens to the onlookers? Not the ones directly involved, but the people surrounding. What happens is this. They are they're overawed. They, that is, this is awesome, they say. And they're filled with wonder. Okay, so let's look at it. On the one hand, we have a release in this person's life of, of, of healing, of joy, and of worship. And on the other hand, 
We have a group of people who, who've never really taken Jesus seriously. And the, out, the insiders, who are actually outsiders because they're missing Jesus, they're overcome with awe and wonder. Can you think of a better prescription for our city? Or our church and those things. The release of healing. The release of joy. Deeper worship. So that the city might awe and wonder at the power of God again. That's what we're here for. What does it take? Never underestimate the power of one man, one person who knows that he has Jesus. One man who knows that he has Jesus. Silver and gold can't help you. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. Do we know we have Jesus? Have, do you know you have him with you? Do you know he's your savior? Do you know he's your friend? Do you know that come hell or high water, he will be with you? Do you know that he has committed himself to you in an unbreakable, unshakable covenant of grace which does not depend on your ability but on his faithfulness. Do you know that when he, when he died for you, he said it's finished. That all striving, all earning, all of that stuff is dead and gone with, it's over. Do you know that whatever brokenness you present towards him, he takes up into himself so that it might be separated from you. Do you know that his grace for you is total, and all it requires is for you to surrender yourself to him fully, to offer your life to him, that you might consider having him more precious than having any other thing. More precious than having silver and gold. There's a story about Thomas Aquinas, who was a great theologian in the church, going to Pope Innocent II Pope Innocent II, as he was, Thomas came to him, he was counting the money. And Pope Innocent said to Thomas Aquinas, he said, nobody could ever save the church now, silver and gold, have we none. And Aquinas said to Pope, and nobody could ever say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. In other words, the church, our danger as the church in the West, is that we've lost focus on what we have. We've lost focus on the power of who we have with us, Jesus. We've become distracted by other things. We've become distracted by lives that are full of busyness, full of iPhones, full of to-do lists, full of comfort. The biggest danger for us is comfort. Would that God 
Send his spirit upon us again that we might see that the only thing we have which we need, the only thing we need is Jesus. And I know to some of you that sounds so incredibly cliche. But we've got to recover a sense in the church again of the value of having Jesus. What does Paul say? I want to know Christ. He said, no, he says earlier on in Philippians 3, whatever gains I have, these I've come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost for the sake of having him, for knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Christ Jesus, he says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but the righteousness which is from God. He says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, that somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's all about knowing Christ. What might God do in us if we make that our aim, our goal, our daily pursuit to know Christ, to have Christ? Church, do we have Christ?